Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Martin Reeves, author of The Imagination Machine. Martin, welcome. Thanks a lot, Mark. Nice to be here. And you're in Norway right now, correct? Yes, I am. Final couple of meetings of the year, and then I'm going to take a break. Well, we're just glad you were able to take the time to speak with us. And usually our show is on Friday, but because Friday is Christmas Eve, we are having the show today. So we're thrilled to have you uh, participate. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about your professional background. Um, Well, um, I started off uh, wanting to be a musician. That didn't work out. Uh, I went into biophysics, uh, studied that in in, uh, Cambridge in the UK and in uh, Tokyo. And uh, the employment prospects were not so great there. So I um, went into consulting and really liked it, actually. I really liked problem solving. Um, So that's where I stuck. I've worked uh, with BCG in uh, many continents, and um, now I run research for BCG. I run our think tank, the Henderson Institute, which comes up with the next set of ideas that uh, uh, managers and leaders will will need, including the one we're talking about today. Is this your first book? No, no. I've uh, written a bunch of um, strategy books, basically. I've written a book... um, uh, called Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, about meta-strategies, about how do you know what sort of strategy you need, uh, not just what is your strategy. And um, I've written a book on um, uh, adaptive advantage, how do, um, how, how, do, how do organizations adapt to changing conditions. And I've written a book about evidence-based change, you know, how can we use data to inform change, which doesn't work very well. Uh, so I've written, I think, uh, six in total. Wow, congratulations. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this book and why did you write it? Um, well, I, I guess I, I noticed as a practicing strategist um, that over the years that even if you take a bunch of smart people, you give them a lot of time, you give them the right resources, you can't really stretch your strategy unless you first stretch your mind. So I got interested in stretching the mind. Um, so I used to do a, a series of what I called pre-strategy games, um, uh, which is you know opening up the mind before you enter the formal strategy process. And then... I started to think about this some more, and I, it struck me that the creative side of the strategy, the imaginative side of the strategy, wasn't very well documented. And so this idea of mind-stretching games morphed into a book about the, uh, the imagination. And um, you know, I looked and uh, couldn't find uh, the sort of book I wanted to write, which is essentially a handbook of how to harness collective imagination. So I set about it with my, uh, with my co-author. Well, I have to tell you, the book was terrific and one that you just can kind of put down and and also one you have to read a couple of times to get all the good information. So let's start off with how do you define imagination as it relates to the business world? Um, Well, the the book technically is not about imagination. It's about harnessing imagination. Yeah. Um, So it's more than imagination. So I, I define harnessing imagination as the ability to think about things which don't exist but could exist and then uh, making them exist. So creating new realities, if you will. 
and for, that's where the title of the book comes from, The Imagination Machine, because um, it, it sounds like a, a strange idea, The Imagination Machine, but if you think about what companies do over long sweeps of time, they take ideas for things that don't exist in the world, and then they create new realities by realizing those uh, those fantasies or those ideas. So I wanted to know, how does that process work, and how can we tame it a little? Um, you list five misconceptions about imagination. What are they? Well, they all come from the uh, romantic period, actually. So we have this idea of the tragic genius, the the genius waiting for the moment of divine, divine inspiration, staring at the clouds and uh, waiting for the big idea. And so that's given us the idea that um, imagination is individual. Um, it's a special gift given to only certain individuals. Um, it couldn't possibly be harnessed systematically because it's uh, it's very complicated and very uh, very frisky. Um, but actually, the more I thought about that, that, that seems rather strange because uh, we don't shy away as, as, as companies from thinking about things like consumer psychology or team composition or team motivation, which are also very human and very complicated. Um, so it struck me as I started to read about the science of imagination, and really there was no reason why we couldn't have a handbook of uh, collective imagination. How, how has the pandemic affected the way companies and entrepreneurs imagine and create new products and services? Um, well, one myth of a crisis, I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, thinking about crisis strategy and, and uh, doing big data analyses of what happens during a crisis. One of the myths about a crisis is that it's a, a cyclical deviation from a norm. So, so in other words, it returns back to how it was uh, before the crisis. But that is almost never the case. Um, uh, the world changes. So when the world changes, that means um, new needs. And we can serve needs passively. We can ask consumers what they want and do what they tell us. Um, or we can uh, imagine new ways of, of, of pleasing them. So this particular pandemic, um, it was the fastest uh, recession in recent history. It was the fastest recovery in recent history. And it dramatically accelerated underlying trends, um, things like uh, concern for family, concern for health, telemedicine, teleeducation, uh, digital uh, uh, digital chain, digital supply chains, digital commerce. Um, so all of that created uh, a lot of uh, opportunities to, to, to reimagine. And in fact, um, every previous crisis we've looked at um, actually increases what we call the competitive spread, the difference between the performance of the best and the worst companies and this one did too. So there really are some winners from COVID, the ones that were proactive about seizing the opportunity to reimagine their business. Uh, was there anything that surprised you? Like, was there a company that sprang up or an older company that made a pivot that you said, wait, you know, they really, they must have read my book. Well, uh, there, there were, we, we wrote a paper called The Winners and Losers in COVID. And, um, and every company has its particular details, but the uh, the broad um, trend is actually pretty much the same across all of these winning companies, uh, and that is that they were never in a completely um, uh, monoculture business. They always had uh, diversity in their portfolio. And um, in biology, there's this thing called pre-adaptation, which, which means that you don't wait until you need a wing to make a wing. You already have something that, that can become a wing. You're pre-adapted um, because you have diversity in your portfolio. All of these companies had diversity. All of them were very interested in figuring out what was going on. Um, and all of them reallocated resources to new sources of growth. So that's basically what all of these companies did. Now, if there was a surprise, it was um, healthcare and education to me because um, strategists like to 
uh, write books about better ways of uh, structuring education and healthcare, but they're the most conservative industries on earth, and there are many you know, false prophets. Um, but actually, in this crisis, um, there were substantial cracks in the model of even the conservative industries in healthcare um, and, uh, and, and education, um, mainly to do with remote learning, but also to do with, for instance, uh, vaccine registration and, and development timelines. A lot of things change in those industries where not much usually changes. How about BCG? What, what was the big change for you guys from this? I, I know the, the strategy part of BCG very well. And um, I, I think uh, with, this, with this imagination book and with companies wanting to you know, accelerate out of the crisis, uh, we, we did a lot of interesting work on um, pattern detection as to how was the world changing and what were the, what were the new opportunities. It's actually a very exciting time of crisis. It's, it's, um, a crisis in some ways demands what you might call psychologically counter-cyclical strategy. In other words, um, you know, as, as, as Warren Buffett says, when be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy, at the, at the very time when other companies are battening down the hatches, it's actually the best time to leapfrog your, your competitors. So that's, uh, that's what we spent a lot of time thinking about on, in, in during the COVID period uh, on, on, on strategy. What, what were most of your clients asking you for, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when nobody was really sure? What, what, what was the advice that they were seeking? Uh, well, that's actually uh, was the core of my job during, during COVID because I guess my my little research unit, um, one of its um, uh, one of its jobs is to is to jump on new and uh, not very well understood opportunities, things like uh, Brexit happening or or COVID. And to you know get a point of view out there very quickly, and um, I think the the hallmark of this crisis was um, that, that that those topics change very quickly. So at the beginning of the crisis, it was a very very fast moving crisis because vi- viruses replicate um, very quickly. So every time you thought you'd understood something, something else happened. Um, so uh, at the very beginning, it was. Um, it was just, you know, what's what's going on? Uh, tell us about COVID. What are the medical effects? What are the economic effects? What are the social effects? There was a rapid learning agenda. Um, then that became um, more about um, reactive strategy, which is, well, what can we do to pre- preserve viability and performance? Um, and then it became um, adaptive strategy. Um, well, uh, you know, this thing looks like it continues to evolve. So how do we make sure we're flexible and resilient in the face of ongoing change? And then eventually that gives way to um, to creative strategy, which is um, actually shaping circumstances and new offerings and uh, imagining new offerings. So it's the it's the multiple timescales of resilience, really. It starts with anticipation, then goes to reaction, and then goes to adaptation and eventually gets to opportunity. I call it the race to optimism. Um, some companies, as soon as there's a crisis, see opportunity. Others never see opportunity. They just see it as a, something to be coped with. Did your recruiting change at BCG? And I taught at Wharton for 10 years. So either my my students went to McKinsey or they went to BCG. And so did it change like the kind of people you're recruiting? No, no, because the thing is there's a huge time lag in our recruiting, right? We we recruit for um for people becoming seasoned consultants two years out, project leaders uh four years out, uh um uh, manage managers six years out. Uh, partners, you know, eight or 10 years out. So actually, you can't overreact. Um, so we we try not to uh, touch the accelerator and the brake too much uh, during the crisis. I think that's something that the company has learned over its uh, history. We were founded in the early 60s. And I think we learned the thing about this business is, uh, you know, you have to think in terms of these, these talent development lags. The other thing is, um, 
the 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 competition for talent is very intense. So you've got to think about the effects uh, not only on your uh, pipeline but on your reputation uh, with uh, with business schools and the other places we're recruited. So for that reason, we no, we didn't uh, we didn't overreact on the recruiting front. So in the book, um, you talk about types of things that spur uh, creativity. What are some of those things? Well, the the neuroscience of imagination says that um, one of the unique things about um, human beings is that we have mental models in our head um, that are more than just passive um, perception. We don't just see something. We have a model of how something works in our head. And we we tend to change that when we encounter surprise. So the inspiration for imagination comes from surprise. Um, So therefore, we have to be surprise seeking in order to imagine and that may sound pretty straightforward but we one of the things we know about large companies is that they become more introverted the the bigger they become it's a bit like a sphere the the larger the radius of the sphere the lower the ratio of the surface area to the volume so by default companies become more and more inward looking and they don't see the change the particulars the surprises which are the inspiration for imagination now some companies uh, lean against that and so they uh, they do see the imagination. Uh, they do see the imaginative surprises. Um, um, reflection time is another big uh, thing that you need for to imagine. And um, in Anglo-Saxon business, uh, particularly, the utilization rates, uh, people, you know, people work so hard and so intensely and so continuously, there's no time for reflection. So that's, that's probably great for execution, but it's really not good for uh, the reflection required for, uh, for, for, for imagination. Um, Counterfactual thinking skills. So if you're trying to think about something that doesn't exist, that could exist, that's a very special type of thinking. It has its own discipline, its own tools. Most of us were not taught that since kindergarten. Um, so that's, uh, you know, places that uh, teach and cultivate that, that's conducive to imagination. Um, and the avoidance of the two things that, that will kill imagination stone dead. One of them is fear. You live in a very pressured environment where uh, there's a huge pressure not to fail and uh, an implicit punishment for failure. You will, you will not dare to imagine anything new. And the other one is complacency. Um, interestingly, the, uh, one of the paradoxes of imagination is that if you're successful in changing the world, as, as our founder, Bruce Henderson, said, uh, you're likely to become a prisoner of the assumptions which underpin your past successful business model. So constantly questioning the basis for your success and saying, staying humble uh, and hungry, uh, all of these things are conducive to imagination. Funny when you talked about reflective, I worked for uh, the chairman CEO of Senecor, a guy named Dr. Hubert Schumacher, who built Senecor and then sold it for $4.2 billion. And uh, he had me spend one day a week, usually Friday, just reflecting. He said, I want you to do nothing. No, no sales calls, nothing. I just want you to spend a day reflecting. This went on for a good year. That that's all he wanted me to do. He said, "You got a creative mind. I want you to think about new ideas that you could do with this organization that I was running on, on his behalf." So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, sounds like a wise leader. Yeah, so to me, uh, time management doesn't mean squeezing more into my schedule. It actually means not titrating myself to 100% efficiency, uh, leaving these uh, blocks for reflection. So I, in my calendar, I I have my assistant schedule what I call thinking time. And um, I use it for reading, thinking, it's for more reflective work. And I need, um, uh, you know, three or more, um, two or three hour blocks per week. Uh, otherwise, eventually I just, you know, dry up. I stop having new ideas. Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, very true. And people need to spend that time to do it. Do you find that CEOs of entrepreneurial companies, you know, ones who founded the company, 
are more adapt are, are more pushing for that kind of thinking as opposed to people. Let's say they rose up through the ranks. They might have come from finance, uh, and then because they have such good uh, financial skills, they end up being the CEO. Or they're really good at sales, and, and they end up um, in those roles. Do you find is there a difference? In- well, one of the uh, fun things about the book is I got to speak to entrepreneurs, people that started companies. Um, uh, that, that, that had, you know, essentially built an imagination machine and large companies that wanted to do so. And um, one of the common denominators of all of the entrepreneurs that I spoke to is that they were, they all had their own words for it. But um, as one of them put it, um, they're, they're very uh, afraid of the, of the death of curiosity. So in other words, when they found a company, they were hand to mouth. They never took their success for granted. They realized they could run out of cash in, in a matter of weeks um, um, and they were constantly questioning the, the, and evolving their model. Um, if they find success, and of course, you know, 95% of startups fail, but if they do find a measure of success and they start hiring the next generation of employees, those employees are, are prone to thinking, okay, I'm joining a sure thing. I'm joining a, a company that they've, where they've got everything figured out. And uh, the entrepreneurs I spoke to said, you know, it's, it's so important to communicate to the recruits that that is that is not the case. We want them to continue to be curious and to uh, and to question. Yes, and by um, the other end of the spectrum, um, I guess the, I guess it, you know, if you're working in finance for a relatively stable industry, um, then you might have seen, you know, a continuous situation a, a, a continuity of a business model or something so your your main obsession is with uh, is, is with the efficiency rather than reinvention but i think that's rather uh, dangerous in today's business environment so one of the my conclusions from the book is that reimagination is the new execution and i i sort of have numerical proof of that because i i looked at something called the competitive fade rate which is the uh, the rate at which competitive advantage fades and it's about 10 times faster than it was in 1990, which means that wow. most companies need in the business of constantly reinventing themselves. So execution against a stable plan is just not good enough anymore. It would be nice if life were, were that simple, but it, it really isn't in most businesses now. So yeah, years ago, I read a book um, by oh, um, John DeLorean, and that when they would go and, and um, build a car, they'd be looking at 10 years out. They don't have that luxury anymore, right? Um, well, it's important to look ahead, but but not in the sense of a plan, um, you know, fixed plans. Um, so Michael Porter is famous for saying that if it's uh, if, if you haven't made a strategy for 10 years, it's not really a strategy. And and that was an accurate statement of um, the relatively stable period until the uh, uh, digital revolution, when um, essentially strategy was even a synonym for, for, for planning. Uh, but that's really that's really not the, not the case now. So you need to look outwards and ahead for the purposes of uh, Im- Im- imagination and detecting you know trends and signals. But um, uh, you know the, the the immutable plan, the big the big planning binder, um, used to be the, uh, the 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 center pillar of strategy, but it but it isn't anymore. Uh, you write about uh, blocks of inspiration. What are those? Uh, where are those things? And how do you minimize things from happening? So introversion, we've already touched on, um, you, you know, and, and you can measure this very easily, by the way, in your next meeting or your next couple of meetings, just put a line down the center of a piece of paper. And every time somebody mentions something classified as internal or external, and you'll find that many large companies are about 95% internally oriented. So that's a, that's a block to imagination. Um, 
an efficiency and execution culture where the only thing that matters is current performance and utilization and you know two percent improvement of efficiency over last year. If that's the of course that matters, but if that's the only thing that matters, then uh, then that's a blockage to uh, to imagination. Um, I think the single biggest one at a, at a personal level is to confuse a mental model for a fact. So, for example, I can say I'm in the pharmaceutical industry. I have a 2.3% uh, m- uh, market share, um, and I'm growing by 3%. It sounds like a fact. Um, actually, it's a mental model. I could equally have said I'm in the health industry, and I have a much smaller market share. Or I could have said that on the surface, I'm on the health industry, but I'm actually in the information industry, and I have a 0.1% market share. Um, and um, and and most of the potential is in, is in markets that don't yet exist. These are all alternative mental models. But when we confuse a mental model for a fact, we don't see even the possibility of uh, of imagining. So one of the things we counsel in the book at an individual level is realize your mental models are just that mental models. Realize that they are choices, not facts, and have alternative mental models. Get used to questioning: How am I looking at this? How am I framing this? How can I reframe this? Well, I think entrepreneurs be the beginning, you know, because you're running out of money, you have to uh, figure out how to pivot quickly. You have to make adjustments. Yep. Uh, and if you don't, you're out of, out of business. I mean, I've faced that many times as an entrepreneur where I had to, you know, I always tell clients when I write business plans for them, half this plan is wrong. And they go, what do you mean? You're writing a plan that's half wrong? I spent a lot of money with you. I said, because we don't know how the everything is going to change. We went in with a basic set of assumptions that half of them are going to be wrong. It's just the way it works. And then you've got to be willing to make adjustments based on on those things being wrong. Indeed. You mentioned the book that businesses will need to be much more knowledgeable about and competent at extracting value from unique processes in human brains. Explain that. Um, So... Going back to the motivation for the book, and another motivation for the book is the rise of AI. Um, so um, it's reasonable to assume that uh, many routine activities of, of, of management will be automated away. They'll be, they'll be done by machine learning algorithms in the future. And so that, uh, that pushes us to focus human cognition within corporations on more uniquely human attributes. And there are three obvious ones. One of them is imagination. Um, and machine learning cannot imagine. Um, uh, another one is empathy. Um, we prefer to deal with humans. We're a social species. Um, and the other one is uh, ethics. You know, we, we can do something, but is it right to do that thing? Um, uh, that, that's, that's a uniquely uh, uh, human thing that cannot be automated away. Um, so I think that the one of the more interesting uh, implications of the rise of AI um, is that we'll have to reconceptualize what an organization means. So we might think of an organization today as uh, a hierarchy of people with relatively fixed roles that uh, divide um, a relatively unchanging overall task uh, between them for the sake of efficiency, the division of work. Um, But in the future, I think an organization will come to mean, um, to to our sons and daughters, I think what an organization will mean will be a synergistic combination of... uh, humans and algorithms, uh, which learn effectively. I won't say execute effectively because for the reasons I explained a couple of minutes ago. So for that reason, um, I think algorithms are important. We have to learn to work with them. We have to focus the humans on the more uniquely human cognitive operations, and we have to figure out how to interface between the two. 
So would you say that companies that have fallen by the wayside over the decades, such as Smith Corona, Sears, Blockbuster, Kodak, lost their high positions because they didn't use their imagination to recreate their business? Like They, they kind of just said, I don't want to screw with it. It's all working just fine, just the way it is. Um, yeah, I think it's the, uh, so it's this thing called strategic ambidexterity, which is, um, you know, everything changes. And, and nowadays, um, things change very fast uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's easy to rewire a digital business or to set up a digital competitor to a company in a, in a very short space of time. And um, uh, therefore, we need to think about two tasks in, in business always. One of them is to run the business efficiently. That we have to generate cash to pay for tomorrow. Uh, and um, But also we have to think about um, how we're going to reinvent the business for tomorrow. And uh, we do become prisoners of the assumptions un underpinning our past uh, success. And being able to think about both things is extremely difficult because it's a sort of paradox. Imagine the CEO said to you in one breath, uh, look, follow the plan, um, you know, beat your targets, uh, don't make any mistakes, be 100% efficient, squeeze every last cent out of the plan. And then in the next breath, he said, but break the rules, um, be fearless, try new things, be creative. Um, you'd probably say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's a, that's a paradox. But that is the paradox of uh, running running business today. And so these companies you referred to, uh, yes, I think, um, you, you, you know, often we, 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 we get sort of um, caricature portrayals of the failure of companies. I mean, these companies are often, often are supplying the best efforts, uh, you know, populated by very talented people. But it's the depth to which they reinvent themselves. Um, you know, do you, do you change the features of the product? Do you change the product? Uh, do you change the the business model? Do you change um, even the market that you're, you're you're competing in? I think the depth of change is much greater today to renew a business. I also think when finance people start to take over these companies, that they basically said, "Look, we're making fat margins on this. Let's just keep riding." writing this out, not realizing you better start cannibalizing yourself or somebody's well, going to do it right. for you. Two, two problems with that. One of them is the Seneca, the so-called Seneca effect after the, uh, the Roman philosopher. The, I mean, he observed that uh, uh, empires and institutions uh, fail faster than they rise. Um, so, you know, you can be, things can feel fine, but they can be about to collapse. And, and then the other one is backward-looking financial metrics. The, uh, most, most public companies uh, on the whole uh, measure two types of things. They measure financial outcomes and they measure productivity ratios. Both of those are essentially backward looking. They're, they're measuring past success. Um, so absent forward looking metrics, you can have the impression that things are going just fine. I, I believe that Kodak had one of its uh, best years, um, uh, two years before it, it, it collapsed. And that's a very, that's a very common, common pattern. So measuring the business in the right way and not measuring it only on backward-looking metrics of current performance, I think is very important too. You know, I, th I thought uh, what you said about Seneca uh, was really interesting because I, I studied fall of dictators and it takes years to gain all that power, but typically they lost it in less than a month. Like they could be in power for 25 years and anywhere between two weeks and a month was typically how fast they lost everything. They had all the infrastructure, everything. You build it very slowly, and it can be lost in a in an instant. Yeah, I think I, I I was so fascinated by that. Why don't companies ask themselves how can we create new options? Uh, as you write in the book, well, I think for some reasons we've already discussed. I mean, it it, it may seem to be 
um, an inefficient thing to do. Um, one of the things I've studied and is reflected a little bit in the book is um, resilience. You know, what is resilience? And um, I've, I've, I've looked at um, resilience uh, of, of, of natural systems as well as man-made systems, you know, uh, biological systems. And resilience boils down to six essential properties. Um, one of them is uh, redundancy. Um, you know, you have buffers in case uh, in case of adversity. adversity. Uh, another one is um, heterogeneity or diversity. You don't have just one way of doing things. Um, so that if your main way of doing things fails, you've, you've got another way of doing things. Um, another one is modularity. You don't, um, you don't burn down the forest if one tree burns down because you, you have a modular structure. Um, another one is uh, adaptability, which is you're constantly changing and tinkering and evolving the model. Another one is prudence, which is if something could happen, uh, then you have a plan for, you know, what if it actually happened? Uh, and then another one is, um, uh, is uh, I call it embeddedness. It means don't get too out of line with the larger systems in which are embedded, you know, um, society and uh, the economy and the natural uh, natural ecosystem. And the, the interesting thing about those six properties of a resilient company, and I, by the way, I define resilience as the ability to flourish and to change, um, is that all of them are, sort of synonyms for inefficiency, right? You know, redundancy. Well, that, that sounds awfully inefficient. The, the CFO probably wouldn't like that. Um, and, um, uh, you know, um, modularity, you know, chop it up into small pieces, constantly change things. All of these are forms of inefficiency. But organizations that are dominated too much by efficiency thinking uh, don't do very well in the long run. Uh, you write about the life cycle of an idea. Can you walk us through that? And where do most companies get tripped up where they don't put the idea into play or they just don't execute it correctly. Right. Um, well, so I, I didn't call my book uh, Creativity for Managers or Innovation for, for, for a couple of reasons. I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted not just to cover the creative spark or the individual mind component of the process. I wanted to cover the whole cycle of industrializing um, uh, ideas. And I also wanted not to just to deal with the things that people do, but the things that people think and do. I wanted to go inside the mind, which is another one of these areas where it's a little bit neglected in strategy. And um, so therefore, um, I looked at the entire cycle and we divided the cycle up into six steps. Uh, the first one is we call the seduction, um, which is you're seduced by an anomaly, an observation, a surprise into imagining new possibilities. Um, so you could call that the inspiration. The second step is we call the idea, which is what people normally think of as imagination, which is working the idea um, so that you go from a one-liner to something you can actually test. Um, uh, so that's just one-sixth of the book. That's not the whole book. And then the third stage is we call it the collision, which is um, when you collide an idea with reality and you see what happens. And by the way, what's going on in that step? You're not just validating the idea. You're not just asking the question, does it work? Because most ideas um, uh, fail uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. And 9,999 ideas in 10,000 uh, fail. And consumer goods, it's a little better, but most ideas fail. But another thing to come out of that collision is new surprises. You, you, you learn more about um, what, what might be the case, what could be the case. The fourth one is where a lot of people um, uh, uh, fall down, and it's, uh, it's, it's to, do with, to do with one of those myths of imagination. It's the spread of ideas. Um, most divisionalized companies have lots of barriers uh, you know, tribal jealousies, special language, lack of network ties to the spread of ideas. If ideas don't spread, they remain private fantasies. 
And uh, then the fifth stage is a very interesting stage, um, uh, which which we call the new uh, the new normal, which is um, actually constructing a new reality, scaling the idea so that um, you get this paradoxical success that if you're successful, your idea becomes boring because it becomes so pervasive and taken for granted. I mean, think about baking soda. Um, baking soda. I mean, you're you're probably not not getting too excited about baking soda, but <laughs> you know, at the time, the idea of putting um, a chemical mixture you buy from a pharmacy in a cake using less eggs and it will it will rise and it will stand up. It was a it was a it was a revolutionary idea. There was a first time that somebody did that. Um, uh, but if you're successful, it just becomes very very dull, and you have to do something else. But how to codify your success is uh, is a very interesting stage. And then the last one is the hardest of all, um, which is the we call it the encore, which is doing it not once as most companies do. Most companies have one big success, and then they you know they're still making vacuum cleaners a uh, hundred years later. Um, but actually doing it multiple times, like uh, like Amazon. Um, Amazon has been remarkable in its ability, ability to enter one business, enter another business, enter another business, not always successfully, but over time it's grown uh, by reinventing um, and, and self, uh, self-disrupting. Microsoft has been chasing that for a long time. I mean, aside from the game industry, they really haven't been able to do what Amazon's been able to do. Right, and, and it's, it's a pure test of ambidexterity. Can you... Can you um, hold the trigger on your own disruption while maximizing returns from your business? That's a very paradox- paradoxical thing to do. But the greatest companies um, uh, want to uh, uh, and are able to, to to do that. We can we can actually measure it. We um, we figured out a way of measuring our companies advantaged at running themselves and reinventing themselves. Both of those things, and we found that um, about three only about three percent of companies could do that. It's a very hard but a, an extremely valuable thing to do, and. It's it's interesting because um, <clears throat> um, ambidexterity in the sense of writing fluently with both hands, the number is is also three percent. So um, it, it, it it's ambidexterity in that sense too. See, I mean, you were just talking about this. You write about the value of collision in terms of coming with new ideas, and and use the Lego founder as an example. Um, how can leaders train themselves and their employees, especially if they aren't creative people? Well, I think I think you're making an assumption there, Mark, and. Obviously, to some extent, um, you know, perhaps some people are more creative than others, or uh, are likely to do, you know, better at, uh, you know, coming up with the next big thing than the next person. But I, I think the strategy of waiting for, you know, waiting for Steve Jobs and waiting for a special moment uh, where Steve Jobs has the divine inspiration for a new business or something—it's a phenomenally bad strategy. And in any case, um, you know, I, I believe we both have children. Um, you know, any five-year-old can imagine. It's it's a basic <laughs> human propensity. But I think it's more a question of our leaders creating the right environment within which uh, imagination can uh, c- can flourish. And almost everything we've talked about today is it's it's sort of somewhat cultural. So actually, we often um, you know we lazy thinking in business often uh, attributes everything to leaders. You know that, that that's bad. That doesn't work because because we need more leadership. Um, but actually, the, the things we're talking about today really are susceptible to um, the culture and the tone and the atmosphere um, set set by leaders. Just think about it in sort of fear, um, complacency, um, extroverted attention, reflection time. These are all things um, where the tone is set by the uh, by the leaders. When you guys are hiring the managing partner for BCG, is that what you look for is somebody who spurs that kind of 
uh, thinking. And, and, and you're right. I mean, you don't have to be born with it, but there has to be a process uh, in place or, or a culture that encourages that. Because how many times have you heard some of your own clients say, God, this isn't where ideas go to die? Yeah. Well, well, I think, um, yes, yeah, so, so we're a partnership. We're a very flat partnership. So it's uh, one person, one vote. And um, and we have multiple multiple election rounds. And actually, we just elect, elected a new uh, uh, a new CEO. And um, I think we're looking for somebody that can run the business and uh, and reinvent the business. And, um, uh, you know, we're still a relatively young company. We're founded in the uh, in the early 60s. And um but uh, so we've we've not had so many CEOs so far because each 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 CEO um, has a you know multi-year incumbency. Um, but I th- I think this has been a skill that this balance uh, this ambidexterity has been something that um, that all of our uh, former CEOs uh, had. And and Bruce Henderson actually sort of founded the company uh, founded the company on it. I mean he he, he you know he's the he's the guy that came up with this quote that you know we need to avoid becoming the prisoner of the assumptions underpinning our successful business model. He he sort of feared success and um, some wise entrepreneurs fear success too because they they don't want to lose the hunger and the curiosity. Hundred percent. So um, now the, the 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 thing about our culture that makes it um, somewhat easy to uh, uh, to do these things is that it's a very it's a very customized culture because every client's strategy assignment is is different. You can't you can't be too cookie cutter. So therefore, um, you know we're quite a decentralized organization where individual initiative is um, is regarded as as as, as essential. Um, I, I think the, the the bigger challenge for us is when we do come across a really good idea and not having as one of a thousand flowers blooming, but actually having the ability to to scale and put resources. Um, uh, to to just to, to scale something, so that, that's what we've been doing with, with digital strategy. Actually, clearly, clients are more and more asking, um, uh, you know, problems that involve digital technology, like um, you know, how to build a business ecosystem or how to digitally transform and so on. And so that was a part of the business we needed to grow very rapidly. It wasn't sufficient that we had a couple of people that had that idea, and then we had fifty-seven other ideas too. So this ability to scale the the codify step step five in the framework is uh, is more of a challenge in a very uh, individualistic or decentralized culture. Um, please talk about the concept of codification and how that works and who's done that well. Um, yeah, so actually success is very mysterious because failure often is due to a single factor. You know, the the, the computer didn't work, so sort of the company failed. Um, but the Success requires a lot of things to go well, and if you think about scaling and replicating success, I mean, let's let's take a very uh, extreme example. If you're the Four Seasons Hotel, you know, legendary customer service, and you're opening your first branch in China with different customers, different laws, different employees, different culture. I mean, what piece of paper do you hand the employees to explain how to replicate success? It's a it's a very tough codification problem, and. Um, most of the times, it's uh, it's implicit. You know, a company has no explicit process or philosophy around codification. But we've, we found some companies that are very good at it. Um, one of them is actually the Lego company that you you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, uh, so if you think about it, building a Star Wars, having a Star Wars ship model that could be built by a five year old or a physics professor that's that's a pretty pretty tough codification problem. And so Lego regards as one of its competitive a competitive advantage, the 
this ability to communicate purely visually. It's visual instruction booklets. Um, so they have their own their own language, their own philosophy about how to how to do that. So that's a great example of of of, uh, of codification. Uh, in the book, we looked at um, one of the one of the first. Um, um, May not have been the first, but a very early uh, example of excellent codification, which is one of the first, if not the first, um, fast food franchise chains, the White Castle hamburger chain. Yeah, you mentioned that um, in the book. Yeah, and and it's fascinating because at the time, the idea of um, of minced meat, um, uh, you know, fast based fast food, was considered to be a very dodgy thing. There was a lot of uh, mistrust in in food safety and processed meat products, and so. Hard, the, the full name of the company, um, uh, sorry, White Castle, I, I just say Hard Castle. Um, White Castle, uh, they called, the, the true name of the company was the White Castle System. Um, why? Because they invented a system that was designed not only to produce hamburgers, but to communicate the cleanliness and nutrition of, of, of hamburgers. So why White Castle? Because they built white porcelain castles to communicate cleanliness uh, to um, to the to the customers that may have been mistrustful of these meat products, and they did a hundred other things too, and it's all in a manual, and that was the franchise manual. So a wonderful example of very well thought out um, uh, codification. Uh, let me just mention one other briefly. Um, so Apple uh, Retail, the the most successful re- retail format on earth in terms of um, uh, dollars per, per per square foot. Um, how do you set up a new branch that replicates that incredible level of productivity? You can't hand people a 3,000-page uh, um, manual. Um, you've got to communicate the essence of success. So they do it with this acronym APPLE, which are the five stages of, uh, of, of approaching a customer. And they take one of those letters every day in every store before the store opens, and they discuss it. And they discuss a particular example of, for instance, approaching a customer. Um, and, um, and that's how they keep... Uh, the conversation focused on what is really essential to success, which is interacting with customers in a sequential fashion um, in, in accordance with the, uh, with, the, with the philosophies. We had a lot of fun with codification. And then we realized um, that actually we value codification too, because one of the quirky customs of the Henderson Institute is that we have a bell, a ship's bell, and we ring it every time something stunningly successful happens. For instance, the CEO calls up and says, could you come and spend two days with me? I want to discuss everything with you. That's a sort of success, right, for a strategic advisor. We ring the bell. Why do we ring the bell? Because it's a signal that we should pause and really reflect on why did this happen? Why did the success the success happen? And then we try and codify and replicate uh, that, that that success. So being right is not good enough. You have to be, be right replicably because you've codified. How do you encourage people to share their ideas if they came from a past business culture that crushed them? Um, well, I think you've got a signal that it's okay to have ideas around there. How do you do that? Um, you know, you model reflection time. Um, I asked one CEO, actually a former BCG CEO, I asked him the question over dinner. I said, um, you know, what was the most important part of your job that was least visible or appreciated? And without any hesitation, he said, protecting Mavericks. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, there are people that have big P&Ls and big divisions and produce lots of cash. We, any company celebrates them. But then there are the people that are seeing things a little bit differently, thinking ahead. And, you know, you need those people around. Those, those are the people that are going to invent the future as opposed to exploit the, the, the present. And they tend to disappear in the middle of the night. Um, they're a bit of a, they can be a bit of a pain in the butt. You know, they're the people in the meeting that says, hang on, there's another way of looking at that when you want to move the meeting on. 
And he said protecting and recognizing those people and making sure that we celebrate that role is, is very important. And we, we found a very excellent company um, uh, in the book that we, uh, I was actually invited to go spend a week with them. And I, I tried to codify their personnel system, which is based entirely around recognizing what they call entrepreneurial heroes. And, and so the idea of that company is that the most important thing is not running big P&Ls. That's somewhat important. The most important thing is to create the next P&L. And for that, they need, they need to celebrate these mavericks. They need to celebrate the, uh, the birth and the development of new ideas. And they have many interesting things they do. Um, for instance, they hold a, a company-wide ideas competition. And anyone that can get up on stage and has one person that wants to do their idea with them um, gets first-round funding. And the idea is that the, uh, the, as the head of personnel explained to me, the idea is that these, they call them festivals, these festivals are designed to make anyone feel that it's their uh, obligation and also their privilege um, and, their, and, and within the range of their abilities to start a new business. And that's the, the point of the company. So they're in a lot of digital businesses. They, they understand the, the impermanence of competitive advantage in business, which is why they're, they're totally focused on renewing themselves. I have to say, one of the, uh, every venture I run, um, when people come up with new ideas, I uh, write them up. And so when people are being recruited, we send them a list of all the ideas that have come from other people in the organization, how we executed on them. So people know that this woman was the secretary. She came up with this idea. This one was the receptionist. This one was the um, janitor. And here's what we came up. I actually had a janitor come up with an idea made 150000 a year. Well, I love the the example that we gave in the book of uh, Hindustan Lever. So Hindustan Lever was the subsidiary of Unilever. Yeah, tell that story. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 a marvelous story because um, so this was a much admired company. It was a very profitable company, a very innovative company. Everybody wanted to work for them. Um, but we spoke with Nitin Paranjpe, who was the CEO at the time, and he's now the COO of Unilever overall. And he said, to be honest, in about two thousand and eight. We sort of hit a plateau. We were still a great company, but we were not, um, you know, things were going a little stale. Things were stagnating. And um, so his task was to reinvigorate this very successful company. And um, the way he did it is he sent every employee out into the field, including the janitors and the receptionists. And um, they all had five questions. They had to answer five questions and, and, and come back with the answers. And the, we have the questions in the book. And the question number three is, what surprised you? And they came back with thousands of ideas. And um, so this company that was running out of ideas had thousands of ideas. And, and, and so they then sorted through them and put in place the revitalization program and, uh, and um, re re reju rejuvenated the company. Um, but it was about you know, going out there and looking what was wrong, what, was, what, were the, what were the hidden opportunities, what did customers really think of? What customers really think of the company and so on. Um, so that's it's it's it comes down to, I think it's a combination of two things we've already spoken about. Right? One of them is external orientation, and open and um, and surprise seeking, and the other one is uh, protecting the mavericks. Essentially, everybody in the company became a maverick. Everybody was invited to bring a surprise into the company. Well, one of the things I you have great stories in there, by the way. The the book's worth it to read just for the great stories. And one of them that I really like was the Made in Form Bra Company about how not to get locked into an idea and being willing to make that change. Um, so talk about that story. Yeah. Well, the, uh, you know, the Maiden Form Bra Company is, is, is the company that invented the, uh, uh, the patented the, the modern uh, brassiere. And um, the, 
uh, it's an example of how the world is smarter than we are. So um, the company was actually pursuing um, a program based upon the idea that um, it would be logical for women to want a an all-in-one uh, undergarment, um, um, uh, all of the various things that were uh, you know, part of the, uh, the, 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 of, of the of those garments at the time. So the, uh, you know, the trusses and the hoops and the, the brassiere part, the all-in-one. And uh, but they kept getting these requests for just the top component, what is, you know, what is now the brassiere. And um, fortunately, they were smart enough to say, well, you know, screw the plan uh, about the integrated, uh, the integrated garment. That, that sort of, very, that's very logical, but that, you know, we're seeing these signals, these surprises that actually it's the exact opposite. So they, um, so they, so they refocused on just the, the upper portion of the garment, what, what became the, uh, the bra and became very successful uh, as, as, a, as a result. So, you know, that's, a, that's an example of where a company that was less observant and less flexible may have stuck with their fixed idea. You know, what does the customer need because we've analyzed and it's logical for them to want this, this other thing? How do you take advantage of anomalies? Uh, and you have some good examples uh, in the book, but especially sometimes you think it's an anomaly and you think you can go after it, but it was maybe a one-off type of thing. So how do you how do you identify those and make sure they're right. smart? Yeah, this, this comes back to um, very relevant to COVID, of course, because um, there was a lot of discussion early in the uh, epidemic of, of trends. What are the trends? And um, it struck me that, it was the wrong question because by the time something is a trend, um, it's well established. Uh, it's unambiguous. Everybody else knows about it, and probably somebody else has already exploited it. So um, there was a stage early in COVID where you where you had um, you know many companies saying, "Hey, there's this trend towards video conferencing." You know that's the thing, and you know, but it's, it had already been exploited. And it was already like completely widely known. So so you really want the nascent trends you want the anomalies that could turn into trends um so how do you how do you detect those well you you look very closely so the your enemy here is this wonderful statistical invention the average uh, on average nothing's going on but in the particular case um there may be an exception or an anomaly so you look at the particulars uh, and of course the outlier data point could be just an outlier or it could be um, it could be a potential trend. So you look for, for instance, continuity over time. You look for robustness and you look at this from different angles. You think about the underlying psychology and economics and you say, does this make sense that we're seeing this anomaly? Um, but of course, the data in Latin data means that which is given. Um, but the, actually, the data is not, uh, it doesn't give you the opportunity. It, it, it just tells you that there's this anomaly. Um, the, the, the anomaly has to be seized and proactively proactively developed into the thing that doesn't yet exists. So wonderful example of this, um, in case it sounds fanciful, um, uh, is the is the uh, company Brooks Automation. So Brooks Automation makes semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And they were a very successful company in that area, but they they saw signs of that uh, that that segment maturing. And so they were looking for they they set out to 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 look for surprises, for anomalies. And they they constructed um uh what we call a second order patent map. They define the surprises. They looked at who was quoting their patents and who was quoting the patents that were quoting their patents. And then they produce this big network diagram. And then their second question was, what's surprising about that? What don't we understand about that? And down in the right-hand corner, there was a little cluster of biotech companies or biological companies that were quoting their patents. It didn't make any sense. They were they made semiconductor equipment. Why, why were 
biology companies um, quoting their patents. They went out into the field and they saw that actually uh, what was going on um, was that people were tinkering with new and better ways of handling biological materials, which were handled very primitively by the standards of the semiconductor industry. So actually they conceived, the big idea coming from this anomaly was, wow, maybe there's an an industry waiting to happen here. The automated, uh, you know, temperature-controlled, aseptic biobanking industry, essentially a new high-tech version of materials handling for biological materials. They went into that business, and actually, um, just to complete the cycle, a couple of weeks ago, it became so successful that they they announced a plan to exit their previous core business, the semiconductor manufacturing business, and focus on this new business, which they'd made um, into a, uh, and shaped into a, into a success. So that's, that's the power of hunting surprises and, and, and anomalies. So I, I thought the topic of intersubjectivity was interesting because I think it's very hard to get multiple minds to work together right. because of strong personalities, different views and objectives. How do you make that work? Well, one of the um, fun things about writing the book was we, we wanted to write, uh, I'm not sure whether you'll tell us whether we succeeded or not, but we wanted to write not just a, a useful book, but an interesting book, because I'm not sure whether you'd agree, but many business books are useful, um, you know, but they're not, they're not that interesting. They're not that entertaining to read relative to, you know, literature or whatever. So we, um, so we, that would be my type of, I, uh, because I wrote <laughs> how-to books. They're, I mean, they're only interesting if you want to learn how to do it, but that's why I pick your book and the books that I pick is because I find them, you know, fascinating to read all the stories, the research. Our method was to, because it was, we, we couldn't have a book on imagination that was not imaginative itself. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't make any sense. And, and also in, in order to understand imagination, we needed to look at the, the history, the philosophy, the arts, and so on, in addition to looking at business. Um, so one of the most fascinating interviews we did with the book um, is a um, was was an old man uh, in Switzerland who was uh, a leading philosopher of phenomenology, and he explained to us. We talked to him for hours about the problem of intersubjectivity. So intersubjectivity means I'm thinking about something, you think you're thinking about the same thing that I'm thinking about, but how would we know? Because we're dealing with an intangible idea. Perhaps we're just very empathetic and we're pretending that we understand the same thing, but we don't. And this actually arises, of course, as a very practical problem in uh, harnessing the imagination. Um, I've got this great idea, and I explain it to you. And how do you know what it really is? You know, you may have the feeling that you know what I'm talking about, but so the how do you solve the intersubjectivity problem is critical to how do ideas spread. And there are different ways of solving it. So, by exception, there are some cases where you can have such a precise language. For instance, the the physics of how to make semiconductors is so precise; it's like algebra. That I can, I can, I can, I can draw the diagram and the dimensions and the molecular structures, and so normally we can't do that, but sometimes we can do that. Um, another way is we we experience together. We look at the same things together. So by sharing experience, there's a good chance that we're sharing the uh, the same thought. And another one is um, prototyping. So prototyping is, of course, to test whether the idea works, but it's also to produce a a physical manifestation of the product, because then we don't have the intersubjectivity problem. We have an objectivity problem. We can both look at the at the same uh, prototype. And um, actually, uh, a little aside, um, when we looked at these these first prototypes of ideas that changed the world, we found that they were 
they were very magical. You could, they were very messy and very interesting objects. You know, for instance, the, the first sketch, sketch of the telephone, the first prototype of the of, of the toaster, the first uh, drawing of the of the Dyson cyclonic vacuum cleaner. They're they're all really fascinating drawings. So we actually, and the listeners can look this up. Um, we we created an online art gallery um, called the Napkin Gallery because of the apocryphal stories of inventors drawing things on the back of napkins, and many of them are on napkins. We created a gal- an art gallery of these napkins online. Um, which you can find at the the imagination machine dot uh, uh, dot uh, org, and um, uh, and 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 th- th- these so these these are the devices that solve the intersubjectivity problem. These first sketches and these first per- prototypes, and I I often take uh, CEOs on a tour of the napkin gallery, and they're very fascinated. They say, "Oh yeah, wow, that's the first sketch of the uh, computer, and that's the first computer mouse," and uh, but then. I, uh, the real point of the exercise is then I ask them two questions. So the first question is, so where are your napkins? Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, uh, well, okay, you don't know where the napkins are today, but you know your culture very well. If if somebody were to produce a messy sketch that was faintly ridiculous because it wasn't steeped in the common sense at the time, you know, of what your industry was going to look like in 10 years' time, what do you think your, in your culture would happen to the napkin? Would it be, would it be disposed of? Um, would the person be celebrated? Would the would you request twenty more nap- napkins? And it always leads to a very interesting and operational discussion then about um, cultures of of imagination and what it takes to produce them. Let me ask you this last question: as we're running out of, out of time here, and I greatly appreciate you being on with us today, and especially it's late over in your part of the world. What's the one thing you took away from writing this book, like you learned that really kind of surprised you? That's a really tough question. Um, there are probably many answers, but my, my answer would be um, I saw an even bigger agenda while writing the book, and maybe that's the next book, and that is um, I, I call it the rehumanization of the corporation. So um, so the idea is that in some sense the imagination machine, the, this current book, is, is about um, – harnessing this unique human capacity of imagination in order to renew uh, companies. Um, But it's part of a wider issue of, you know, in the context of technology, in the context of uh, climate change, in the context of mistrust, in the context of pervasive and extreme inequalities, uh, this, this human artifact, this human invention, the corporation needs to be repurposed in some way. And we need to bring our full human capabilities and purpose to uh, to the corporation, um, and so that that agenda for the reinvention of the corporation, which I call the the rehumanization of the corporation, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of burning to do some some more work and thinking uh, uh, about that. Well, Martin, thank you so much. I hope you and your family of five—I think that's what you told me—five kids and your wife have a wonderful, safe holiday. I hope all of you who are listening today have a wonderful, safe holiday. And we'll look forward to that new book because uh, that sounds really interesting. And again, we hope 2022 is a great year for you and everybody else listening. Thanks a lot, Mark. I enjoyed the conversation. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.